Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. He is risen. Wow, most of you got that. That's pretty remarkable. I messed up really badly during the 6 a.m. worship. I actually said, it is finished. Well, actually, I said, he is finished. And I was like, oh, man, that was bad. It's too early in the morning. So, um, well, today's passage is actually the same one that I shared on Good Friday. And it's this really amazing verse um, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And what's interesting about this verse is that Jesus is giving this to his disciples prior to uh, the, uh, the cross and the resurrection. And so it really is a wonderful quick summary of the purpose of the cross, as well as the power of the resurrection, what we are remembering today. So on this Easter Sunday, I'd like to look at this particular phrase of that verse, your sorrow will turn into joy. And I want you to notice that it says, your sorrow doesn't say will be taken away in place of joy. This is a really important distinction. Instead of saying sorrow will be in place of joy, it says sorrow turns into joy. Sorrow turns into joy. In other words, Jesus didn't die on the cross, and then the resurrection just sort of cancels out sin and death and suffering, at least in this world. When Jesus died, he really did suffer and die on the cross. That was not a a mystical formula for Jesus. All of the shame and sin, as we looked at on Friday, was very real. But the amazing thing about the resurrection is that there's a transformation that takes place. And this transformation goes from what is most horrific to most wonderful. For those of us who are Christians, we understand this. Because we Christians, we actually admit we're woeful sinners. Sin is not just for those who do not know Christ. Anyone who knows Christ knows how much we, in our hearts, turn away from the Lord again and again, as much as anyone who does not know Christ. Christians also suffer loss and heartache and tragedy and pain and sorrows. So one thing that is not promised, which I think sometimes really is a misunderstanding of the good news of Jesus Christ is that Christians actually do suffer too. We're not always so prosperous. If your loved one dies and someone says to you, you shouldn't grieve so much because they're in heaven. Well, this verse today says that's not the case. We have sorrows. If you believe in Jesus, you will have sorrows. There is grieving. But in Christ, and especially as we're looking at today, in the resurrection, there's a transformation. Sorrows are turned into joy. 
So the sorrows are real and they exist. And those sorrows can feel overwhelming, dreadful, miserable. But in Christ Jesus, there's hope. There's peace. And remarkably, Jesus says, there's also joy. Even though the sorrows still exist. That is the mark of a Christian. The Christian faces sorrows, but exhibits joy in the midst of the sorrows. And so I'd like to look at how that happens. What does that look like? I want to look at two different ways in which sorrows turn into joy. The first is this idea that we looked at on Sunday is that shame turns into glory. And then second, suffering moves forward to the resurrection. So I'm going to read that verse again, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. We looked at that on Friday. You will be sorrowful. Looked at that on Friday. But your sorrow will turn into joy. And we spent a lot of time on Friday talking about the cross being the means by which we deal with shame and disgrace. And our instinct in dealing with shame and disgrace because of sin is to hide, to cover up, to lower our eyes, to avoid, to cut off people, to cut off ourselves from the world, to run away, maybe to lay in bed all day. When things do not go our way, and when we fail, even miserably, we instinctively hide. And I want to take a one sidestep here to say that for some of you, you might not have experienced this at all, especially for those of you who are young. And you know, you are generally healthy, you're comfortable, things are going well at school, you're smart, you're athletic, everything's going great. So the question is, what are you talking about when it comes to sorrows? Because I don't understand it. Just look at your parents. (laughs) I'm kidding. Maybe grandparents you need to look at. You know, the reality is that, as we all know, Life, as James says, is a vanishing mist. It goes so fast. And what right now might seem, well, why do I need Christ? Why do I need the resurrection? I don't understand this sorrow stuff. My friends, you will understand it one day. Maybe it might take five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, but one day you will be faced with deep sorrows. And you'll be wondering, where do I turn? The gospel shows us that there is a place to turn. The cross shows us that in the midst of this utter shame and failure, if you believe in Jesus and you know he gave his life for you, you've been set free forever. One Christian executive of a company said this, I believe that one of the great comforts of the gospel is the freedom to fail. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care about laziness or sinful failures. He absolutely does. But the good news of Jesus Christ, that his blood was shed on the cross, covering our sins, giving us his righteousness, a new identity, a new family in Christ, means that even our worst failures have been covered up by that. To have that type of freedom to be weak, vulnerable, transparent, even fail, even miserably fail, that is a kindness. And the older you get, or perhaps the more difficult trials you face, you see that more and more. 
Remember, Jesus is saying these words to his disciples. The disciples, they were not models of excellence. When Peter said that he would give his life for Jesus, if everyone falls away, Jesus, I'll be there. I will give my life for you. I actually believe he meant that. I don't think that he's just all bluster. That when he cut off the servant's ear to defend Jesus at his arrest, he really was zealous and sincere. But the thing about that type of passion, even for something that he believes in, and for Peter, he believed in a revolution, a revolution of government, of political change, of sociological change. Jesus didn't ask for that. It's not what he was about. And so once Peter realized it, he ran. Jesus did not come about to bring a revolution of government or political systems, sociological systems. Jesus came to do much more than that. He came to change a spiritual government, a government that is headed up by the greatest enemy of all, Satan himself, a worldly kingdom. And when Peter could not get it, he and his fellow disciples, they ran. They denied Jesus. You know, Peter's shame was so great that when someone, a servant girl, comes up to Peter and says, I saw you talking to that man, Jesus. Peter was so frightened that suddenly that courage that was there earlier, it just dissipated in a moment. And it actually says, the gospel writers say that he called curses down upon himself. He swore to God. He cursed and said, no, I have no recollection of this man. I do not know him. And right when he said that, he turns and Jesus is there, you know, bound, led towards the trial, towards Judas, and their eyes meet. And the rooster crows after he's denied him three times. How do you think he felt? How would you have felt? It would have been the most grievous moment of his life. Jesus knew, though, before even that event would occur, that Peter would weep. I mean, that's what he's saying in chapter 16, verse 20 of the Gospel of John, way before his arrest, well, at least a, a day or two before his arrest. And he knew that the disciples would be weeping and Peter would weep. But that weeping will turn into joy. It's a reflection of words that the psalmist writes in Psalm 3, 3 to 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. If you have ever felt ashamed, embarrassed, or disgraced, one way that that physically manifests itself is you can't lift up your eyes. You can't stare at a person. Because to see someone's eyes is really to, it's unnerving. Every Sunday, quite often when Pastor Fuji, he's doing announcements. He stares right at me. I mean, it is, I don't know why, but he does that every Sunday. He's literally glaring at me. And I'm thinking he's giving these announcements to me. And actually, he's staring so intently, I drop my eyes. I don't want to look at him anymore because I'm hoping, will he look at someone else for a change? 
It really is unnerving. And I don't know, I threw him under the bus right there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mark of shame when you cannot lift up your eyes of sorrow. You don't feel worthy enough. You feel so low. The tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, 13, Luke, Jesus describes this parable this way, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But to be truly free, you have to be in this place. You have to be in a place of utter lowliness where you cannot lift up your eyes, that you know you don't deserve to be loved. If you want to be set free, you have to start there. But Jesus doesn't just leave you with your eyes lowered. Again, the Psalms. You are a shield about me, O Lord, my glory and the lifter of my head. He lifts our heads. He says, you're not low anymore. I gave my life so that you can stand up straight, so you can walk with your head up, so that you have a new identity. You are a child of the great God, son and daughter, And so with that, no matter what anyone else says in this world, no one can take that away from you. All we need to do is go back to Peter again. The lowest point in Peter's life was when he saw Jesus' eyes after he had denied him the third time, calling curses. The sorrows were so deep, there was no way he would ever be able to lift up his eyes again. And we're told in Luke 22, 62, and he went out and wept bitterly. He had to run. He had to leave the scene. He could not be there. He went out. He ran. He stayed away. That's what often happens when you feel guilty because you've hurt someone. You've done something wrong. You've said something. There's a defensiveness or a running away or a hiding or a closing or a, a putting down of your head. But these words from John 16, 20, They're not a lie. Weeping and sorrows would turn into rejoicing. And it would run towards Jesus, not run away from him, but run towards him. We see this in Luke 24, 12. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, they come back from the tomb of Jesus. They see in that tomb, it's empty. They don't know what's happened. They don't know where he is. And this is how Luke records the event. In Luke 24, 12, he says this. Because they tell the disciples, and Peter responds. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping in and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Look at the verbs that describe what Peter does, his actions. He runs to the tomb. This is a man who ran away from the Savior whom he had denied three times. At his lowest point, he could have taken the road of Judas. I'm sure he was tempted to do so, to think, you know what, I don't deserve to live. Self-pity just swarms into your soul. Because when you hurt someone badly, sometimes you feel... You have no right to be in their presence. And for Peter, how that must have sunk deep into his soul. 
on the third day when he hears this strange report. These women going and saying, by the way, it's really remarkable when you think about the fact that there was guards set at this tomb. What happened to Jesus' body? There's all sorts of speculation from those who refuse skeptics, who do not want to believe in the resurrection. But it would have taken a miracle for any other of those other options. Someone stole his body. Well, there were multiple guards or the apostles who had a scam cooked up so that they could expand Christianity, not with these guys who are really weak and feeble. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why maybe you don't think it's true, but they don't make sense. The only thing that actually makes sense is the resurrection, and it's remarkable in that way. Well, anyway, Peter runs because the glory and lifter of Peter's head had caused him to run to that tomb. And so the end of the story for Peter and for us is not death. The end of the story is resurrection, joy, celebration, running, dancing, glory. I tell you, I've been to some of the most difficult places in the world when it comes to sorrows. I've seen and met many women who have lost sometimes upwards to more than five children to death due to poverty, disease, lost husbands that way, who are caring for basically numerous children and grandchildren on their own. And with all of their sorrows, you would think they should be living a life of utter misery because they're impoverished, they've experienced death, they have no husband. But when you go to places like Zimbabwe, Malawi, some places all around the world, places in China, different parts of Asia, and you hear of men and women who have trusted in Christ through the most difficult of sorrows, you don't only hear weeping, you hear laughing and singing and dancing and praise and glory. It is truly remarkable because the brokenness is still there. See, that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying your sorrows are forever gone and now there's only joy. It's your sorrows, they turn into joy. Their sorrows are still there, the joy is greater than the sorrow. And so I've seen this so deeply, so personally, where these women who should be the most sorrowful, and they are, but still can rejoice. How does that happen? Only if Jesus rises from the grave. If he doesn't rise from the grave, then we're dead in our sins. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile, and we are to be the most pitied of all people. But Peter's story is utter failure and sorrow if Jesus doesn't rise. But if he rises, there is running and marveling involved. Running and marveling. And my friends, on this day, we celebrate shame that has turned into glory. That is the great power of the Christian faith that we can face death and still experience joy. And I've seen that in some of you. I've seen really hard, difficult times. 
Never let someone tell you, oh, you shouldn't cry. You shouldn't grieve. You shouldn't mourn. You shouldn't feel sadness. No, we are sad, but we are joyous. Secondly is that suffering turns into the resurrection. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus' suffering on the cross was so horrific because of our sin. And the consequences of sin are so horrific. So that cross was intended to be the maximum amount of pain and sorrow and torture and tragedy, to be the representation of the full rejection of God. If there's any way in which somehow a physical picture of God's judgment against sin could be revealed, it was the cross. But the resurrection is the fullness of God's power to overcome that sin and to destroy the power of sin and death forever and ever. So Good Friday has gone. Resurrection Sunday is now. And if you are in Christ, your story is resurrection. It's not simply death, it's resurrection. I want you to listen to Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I don't know if you see it in this verse, but he will wipe away. Again, it's, there will be an end to suffering. Crying and pain is gone. But it doesn't just disappear in the blink of an eye. It requires Christ to do the wiping. See, this is the thing about the gospel is that there's always an action by God. It doesn't just disappear into thin air. Our sin doesn't just vanish. Because if God did that, he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be the God whom the Bible says he is, which is a perfectly just, moral, righteous God. But the way he answers all of our sinfulness, our rejection of God, the way he deals with evil, Satan, is that he has to take action. And that action is going to be upon himself because no other human being could ever do that. We just cannot take away sin. So he has to wipe away tears. He has to be the one who acts. And for God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He makes it possible to no longer experience this pain forever. Because of that, we Christians, we're not miserable people. It doesn't mean we don't experience pain on this side of heaven. And as long as you're in this world, you will suffer. And Jesus says that so clearly in John chapter 16. But he says, take heart, I've overcome the world. Suffering will not overtake you. Tribulation does not control you. The winds, they blow hard. And remember those really windy days about a month ago? It seemed like, I don't know if your house felt this way, but it felt as though our house would not be able to withstand it, especially the glass. It felt like the wind is just going to break it through. The wind blows hard, but it does not fall. Or as the hymn writer puts it, on Christ the solid rock I stand, 
All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. On this day, my friends, we remember sorrows. We never dismiss them. The Christian always sees sorrow in this world. When you read the news, when you're dealing with broken relationships within your families, amongst even other Christians, when troubles are happening in the church and you think, this is a church, why are we against one another? This is this side of heaven, sorrows, grieving. But rejoicing comes, or as the psalmist says, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And one person that I think epitomizes this perspective so well is Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been living a long time. Her life is probably coming, drawing near. She's almost fought her fight to the end. She was par- For those of you who don't know who she is, she was a young girl when she was paralyzed in a diving accident. And she's a quadriplegic, has been in a wheelchair all her life, for most of her life. And this is what she says. In a way, I wish I could take to heaven my old, tattered Everest and Jennings wheelchair. I would point to the empty seat and say, Lord, for decades I was paralyzed in this chair but it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations you endured when you laid aside your robes of state and put on the indignity of human flesh. At that point, with my strong and beautiful glorified body, I might sit in it, rub the armrests with my hands, look up at Jesus, and added, the weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the more I discovered how strong you are. Thank you, Jesus, for learning obedience in your suffering. You gave me grace to learn obedience in mine. I'm pretty 100% sure that Johnny in her life prayed for healing, prayed that she would be able to walk up from her chair as a quadriplegic, not being able to even use her arms having her husband carrying her, washing her, bathing her, time after time again. But the truth of what she is saying is exactly this day, that sometimes God says, I'm going to show you grace by not healing you, but show you more of me as you sit in that wheelchair for the rest of your days. That is a resurrection hope and faith. Because one day, she will not sit in that wheelchair. She will have a glorified body. It is not the end, the wheelchair. And how many of us are so sullen sitting in the wheelchair of our hearts and saying, God, you don't love me. You don't care for me. You don't provide for me. If you are strong and healthy today, everything is going right for you, get ready. There will come a day where that is gone. And it could be tomorrow. You could leave this room, and something tragic can happen. 
But how will you face that time? Will it be in sorrow and self-pity and despair? Or will it be with the joy of the Lord as your strength? I hope you see that the cross of Christ is not the end of the story. It is this day, the resurrection. Sorrows have turned into joy. That is the Christian power. And no one and nothing can rob us of that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hear from two people being baptized that I think in, in some way exhibit some of the truths and realities of what we read about in John 16, 20. Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed by the cross of Christ. But that cross would be utter despair without this day, the resurrection. The resurrection shows that the cross was truly the bearing of the punishment of sin, our sin, my sin. But the resurrection shows us that that sin has no power anymore. Death, where is your sting? And we praise you for such days and such times, the preaching of your word and the gospel, the gospel displayed through baptism, the gospel displayed through the Lord's table. All of this points us to this one truth that no matter what we face in this world, no matter how strong we are or how weak we are, You gave your life, O Lord, so that we might truly have abundant joy in you, eternal joy where you will wipe every tear from our eye. May we never doubt that. May we know that the bedrock truth of the resurrection, this historical fact, is what points us to the reality of all that your son has accomplished and done for our sake. We ask, we worship, we listen, we run, we marvel in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.